Alright everybody, welcome back. This episode will take 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to speak about the victory over the Philistines and Jonathan's uh, little adventure in faith. We'll just jump into the first three verses. Uh, we're going to get Jonathan's proposal. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Hittub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So at the beginning, there was nothing on this day to indicate it would be remarkable. But on this day, God would win a great victory through the bold trust of Jonathan. And God is ever on the outlook for believing souls who will receive his power and grace on the one hand and transmit them on the other. He chooses them and by that by them he should make his mighty power known. So every officer in the Israelite army had an assistant known as an armor bearer. The armor bearer helped the officer in battle and in the administration of the army. They often carried the armor and weapons of the officer so they were known as armor bearers. So armor bearers in ancient times had to be unusually brave and loyal since the lives of their masters often depended upon them. So the Israelites were in a military conflict where victory seemed impossible. They were vastly outnumbered and greatly surpassed in military technology. Yet Jonathan was bold enough to go over to the Philistine garrison just to see what the Lord might do. So Jonathan perhaps thought of Shamgar and how Judges chapter 3 verse 31 describe Shamgar's victory over the 600 Philistines with a sharp stick, right? So Jonathan perhaps thought, well, if God could do it through Shamgar, then he can do it through me. And Jonathan could strengthen himself on the promises of Leviticus chapter 26 verse 8, where five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Right, but he also didn't tell his father. Perhaps this was just an oversight or something easily and properly explained. Or it may be that Jonathan deliberately did not tell his father because he believed his father would have simply said no. So Saul was sitting. This is a big contrast to Jonathan. The bold, brave king was simply sitting under the pomegranate tree while his son boldly went over to the Philistine garrison. Saul and the priest with an ephod sat back while Jonathan bravely trusted God. So the mention of Ichabod seems almost unnecessary. Why would we need to know that the priest with Saul, Ahijah, was the nephew of Ichabod? Probably God wants us to associate the meaning of Ichabod's name with where Saul is at spiritually. Saul's royal glory is almost gone. And it's appropriate that he associates with the relative of the man the glory has departed, right? The na his name meant the glory has departed. So the people didn't know that John Jonathan was gone, and this indicates that Jonathan did not go over to the Philistine garrison out of desire for personal glory. If that were his motive, he would have told at least a few people that he went, right? He did this on his own. So Ahiah is called Ahimelech in verse 3, right? Let's go down to verses 4 and 5 where Jonathan's going to find a strategic position. So between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozez, and the name of the other, Seneh. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. So on his way to the Philistine garrison, Jonathan saw a strategic position. Position, a narrow path 
though a pass with oh, excuse me a narrow path through a pass with large sharp rocks on either side a few men could easily fight against a much larger number at this strategic place so if Jonathan never decided, come let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, he would have never found this strategic place. So God guided Jonathan as he boldly trusted God and acted on that bold trust. Moving on to verse 6 and 7, Jonathan's bold proposal. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. So for Jonathan, this was more than a reconnaissance expedition. He wanted to see what God might do through two men who trusted him and stepped out boldly. Jonathan knew the need was great. Israel was hopelessly outnumbered and demoralized. And Jonathan knew God wanted to use someone. King Saul wanted to sit under the pomegranate tree. Something had to be done, and Jonathan was willing to let God use him. And Jonathan knew that God wanted to work with someone. Jonathan could have just prayed that God would rain down fire in heaven from on the Philistines. But Jonathan knew that God uses the bold action and fighting spirit of his people. It was not Jonathan who was at work with... Uh, that was to work with some help from God. It was the Lord that was to work by Jonathan, right? Note the difference. And this is wise courage in God, right? Many in Israel probably believed this as a theological truth, but few believed it enough to do something. Jonathan's faith was demonstrated by his works, right? Note the order there. Faith first, works second. The only thing that can be said to restrain God is our unbelief in Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. God's power is never restrained, but his will may be restrained by our unbelief. And he may choose not to act until we partner with him in trust. God had a trusting partner in Jonathan. So the odds were already against Israel. Did it matter if it were a million to one or a thousand to one? Numbers or odds did not restrain God, but unbelief could. Jonathan never read the New Testament, but he had a Romans chapter 8 verse 31 heart. If God be for us, then who can be against us? Jonathan had little faith in himself, but great faith in God. It wasn't, I can win a great victory with God's help. It was, God can win a great victory through even me. So these words from Jonathan's armor bearer must have cheered Jonathan greatly. When we step out in faith, encouragement can make all the difference for good, and discouragement can make all the difference for evil. And God was going to use Jonathan, but he wasn't going to use Jonathan alone. When God uses a man, he almost always calls others around the man to to support and help him. They are just as important in getting God's work done as the man God uses. So verses 8 through 10, Jonathan proposes a test. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us thus, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So, very well. This indicates that Jonathan took the support of his armor bearer as confirmation. And in his step of faith, Jonathan wanted to know if God was really leading. So he proposed a test based on the response of the Philistine guards. Jonathan showed wisdom and not unbelief. To this point, he did not act on a specific confirmed word from God. Instead, he followed the bold hope and impression of his heart. He was humble enough to know that his heart might be wrong on this day. So Jonathan asked God to guide him. And this is not the same 
same as Gideon's setting of the fleece in Judges chapter 6, verses 36 through 40. Gideon had a confirmed word of God to guide him, and he and if he uh, and he doubted God's word. Jonathan did not doubt a word from God. He doubted his own heart and mind. So Jonathan was prompted by faith. Significantly, he did not demand to know the whole battle plan from God in advance. He was willing to take it one step at a time and let God plan it out. Faith is willing to let God know the whole plan and to know our part one step at a time. All right, verses 11 through 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer attacked the Philistines. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. As he came after them, his armor bearer killed them. That first Slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within half an acre of land. So, at this time of crisis, the Israelites hid anywhere they could in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 6. And it was reasonable for the Philistines to think that these were Hebrew deserters surrendering to the Philistines because they thought it would be better than hiding in a hole. At this exciting moment, God confirmed Jonathan's bold trust with this sign, right? He knew God would do something great. So, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. This is a difficult climb. Jonathan was not the kind to say, well, well, it would be nice to do this, but the rocks are steep and there are a lot of Philistines up there. Let's just pray instead and if we if only <laughs> if we only want victory or only want to be used by God when it's easy, we won't see much victory when we won't be used much. <clears throat> right? Sometimes it's very difficult. If we take the easy path, we won't be used very much. So Jonathan knew that the battle was the Lord's, yet he had knew that God would use him to fight. When Jonathan saw God's confirming sign, he didn't lay down his sword and start praying that God would strike them all down. He prayed, made sure that his sword was sharp, and trusted that God would use him to strike them all down. All right, verse 15, God attacks the Philistines. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. So it seems that the Philistines were under a divine confusion, and they woke that morning thinking that we were attacked by enemies in our midst. So they rushed about thinking that their fellow Philistines might be the enemy, and began to fight and kill one another. And it didn't matter if the Philistines greatly outnumbered the Israelites, and had far better weapons than them, God was more than able to set the Philistines against each other. If the Israelites had no swords, the Lord would use the swords of the Philistines against the Philistines. So Jonathan used his heart and sword, but God did what Jonathan could not do. He sent an earthquake to terrify the Philistines. Often we wait around for God to do what we can do, but God will often do miracles, what he alone can do, if we will do what we can do, right? We do everything in our own power. God will take care of the rest. All right, verses 16 through 19, Saul learns of the battle. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. So as the 
the watchmen of Israel kept an eye on the huge army of the Philistines, the army started to melt away as they watched. And to call the roll, this was useless at the moment. Saul should go and fight the Philistines at this strategic moment. Instead, he was probably worried about who was leading the battle and who would get the credit. So he said, bring the Ark of God here. This was useless at the moment. Saul was probably trying to look spiritual here, but there was nothing to seek God about. This, There is a time to go aside and pray, and there is a time to get your sword and go out and fight. And Saul didn't know what time this was. So eventually the noise of God and Jonathan fighting the Philistines became so loud that Saul knew he also had to fight. So he told the priest, withdraw your hand. This meant stop seeking an answer from God with the Urim and Thummim, which were held in the pouch in the priest's breastplate. So Jonathan's heroic encounter shocked and frightened the Philistines. Saul's lookout could see the enemy in flight, knowing that this must have come about because of some Israelite involvement. The king checked to determine who among his troops had undertaken this independent action. Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing. So Jonathan, Saul's son, was evidently a godly man, for the Lord gave him and his armor bearer a victory over the Philistines. Saul was only a spectator, but then uh, he then mustered his troops and shared in the victory. In verse 18, Meanwhile, Ahijah the priest, verse 3, came bearing the ark of the Lord. It was still housed at Kiriath-Jerim in chapter 7, verse 1, but as a symbol of the presence of the Lord, it was summoned by Saul to the battle. And in verse 19, when Saul saw that the Philistines were in total disarray, he ordered Ahijah to withdraw his hand from the sacred lots, the Urim and the Thummim. And you can see chapter 14, verse 19, Exodus chapter 28, verses 29 through 30, and 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 40 through 42. The will of God was now clear to so Saul, with the Israelite defectors and refugees, achieved a great triumph. A lot of tongue twisters in this chapter. <laughs> Forgive me. <clears throat> All right, we're taking verses 20 through 23. Saul fights in the battle, and a great victory is won. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went with him into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they heard that the Philistines fled, that they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So Saul was the leader of Israel, but it took him a long time to start leading. Now he follows God and Jonathan into battle. And it seems that many in Israel had an insecure heart of Saul. These Hebrew servants of the Philistines probably hated their masters, but were afraid to stand free in the Lord. They only came out for Israel when victory was assured. So God really used Jonathan, but it wasn't Jonathan's victory. It was the Lord's victory. God was just waiting for someone with bold trust of Jonathan. So verse 24, Saul's going to compel the army of Israel under an oath. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. So Jonathan, in his bold trust in the Lord, had just struck a mighty blow against the Philistines. Now it was the job of the army of Israel under King Saul to finish the job by striking down the fleeing Philistine army. On this day of the battle against the Philistines, Saul declares a curse. 
Curses the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. On the surface, this sounds so spiritual. Let's set today aside as a special day of fasting unto the Lord. We want God to do a great work, so we should fast today. I will enforce this among the whole army with a curse. Right, this shows that Saul's focus was wrong. Saul put the army of Israel under an oath so he could take vengeance on his enemies. If he regarded it as his battle, he should simply fast himself. Saul showed that even in doing something spiritual like fasting, his focus is on himself and not the Lord. And through this curse, Saul puts the focus back on himself. That day, no one would be thinking about Jonathan because their hunger would always remind them of Saul's curse. Right, And this shows that Saul's sense of authority was wrong. He did not have the authority to proclaim such a curse, and he was not a spiritual leader of the nation. He was a political leader. If any such fast was be to be declared and a curse attached to it, Samuel had the special or spiritual authority to do it, not Saul. And this also shows that Saul's promised punishment was wrong. It was certainly heavy-handed to say, cursed is the man. If Saul wanted to call for a voluntary fast, that was one thing. He might have said, I'm fasting today before the Lord. If anyone wants to join me, they're welcome. But instead of leading by example and inviting the army of Israel to follow, he placed the people under an oath. So this shows that the result among the army of Israel was wrong, right? The men of Israel were distressed that day. No matter what Saul's motive was, it was foolish. When the morale and physical energy of Israel should have been the strongest, the army was weak and discouraged. There's nothing wrong with fasting in and of itself, but this wasn't the right day and time for it. This was Saul's day to fast, not the Lord's day to fast. So unfortunately, however, Saul uttered a foolish vow that day forbidding his soldiers to eat any food. And how foolish to think that a sacrificial vow would give them victory when his heart was not right with God. He was later to learn to obey is better than to sacrifice. Alright, taking verses 25-30, through 30, Jonathan unknowingly breaks the oath and is told of his offense. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground, and when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the hand of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand in his mouth, and his countenance brightened. And one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Right? So this is a provision from God to find honey on the ground like this. The Israeli army was hot on the pursuit of the fleeing Philistines. They were all tired and hungry, and they needed energy to continue the pursuit and finish the battle. And God provided honey on the ground. The mopping up operations after a rout were all important if the maximum benefit from the victory was to be reaped. But pursuit of the enemy involved an exhausting, unremitting journey over steep hills for hours on end. So this group of soldiers saw the honey dripping right in front of their eyes, yet Saul's foolish oath prevented them from receiving what God put right in front of them. And that's a model for us today. Because of this, Jonathan ate some of that honey, and immediately it did the weary soldier well. His countenance brightened. He needed the energy to fight, and here it was, provided by God. Often we won't take what's right there in front of us. 
perhaps Jonathan should not have said this, right? My father has troubled the land. There was a sense in which he was undercutting his father's authority before the troops. If there was anything to say, it would have been best to say that his father uh, directly, right? Despite all that, Jonathan was exactly right. King Saul had indeed troubled the land with his pseudo-spiritual command to fast. Because of his command, the people were faint on the day that they should have been strong. They were weak and distracted, and the victory was diminished. In verse 27, Jonathan knew nothing about this curse, so he went ahead and ate some honey, and he was strengthened. And his example of practical wisdom encouraged the army to go ahead and eat after their victory in verse 31-32. That we're going to take now. We'll take verses 31 through 35. The soldiers of Israel sinned because of Saul's foolish command. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. So the people were very faint, and the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. And note that they ate them with the blood. And then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And Saul said, Disperse your Yourselves among the people, and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep, slaughter them here, and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Okay, so a lot, lot done in this passage. God specifically commanded Israel that they should always properly drain the blood from an animal before they butchered it in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 23 through 20. On this day of battle, because of Saul's foolish command, the people were so hungry that they broke this command, right? We start to see a continuing pattern here. Their obedience in Saul's foolish command led them to disobey God's clearly declared command, and this is the this is always the result of legalism. We often think that legalistic rules will keep people from sin. Actually, the opposite is true. Legalistic rules will lead us into sin because they either provoke our rebellion or they lead us into legalistic pride. So Saul blamed the people for what uh, was really his own fault. He should have never made such a foolish commandment, and his commandment provoked the people into sin. So Saul set up a stone to properly butcher the animals, and also built an altar to the Lord. At least Saul did what was right after he did what was wrong, right? But two wrongs don't make a right. So verse 32, Saul's army was so hungry that they ate the meat without draining the blood. We covered that. Leviticus 17 verses 10 through 14 tells them not to do that, which was even worse than breaking the vow that he put on them. And then verse 33, transgress can also be translated dealt treacherously. And verse 34, this so alarmed Saul that he hastily built an altar on which to offer a propitiatory sacrifice to the Lord. All right, verses... (laughs) 36 to 39, in response to God's silence, Saul makes another foolish oath. Here we go again. Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them, right? And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Uh Uh-oh. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a 
a man among all the people answered him. All right, this is, so Saul asked the counsel of God. And this is good. Saul should have sought the counsel of God. We shouldn't think that everything Saul did was bad before the Lord. He did not answer him that day. Saul inquired of the Lord through a priest, and it is likely that the priest used the Urim and the Thummim to inquire of the Lord, right, to get his answers. The use of discerning tools of the Urim and Thummim is described on a few occasions. It's covered in Exodus 28, verse 30, Numbers 27, verse 21, 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, Ezra chapter 2, verse 63, and Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 65. And their use may be implied in other passages where Israel sought God in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and Judges chapter 20, verse 18 and 23. The names Urim and Thummim mean light imperfections. We aren't sure what they were or how they were used. Most think they were a pair of stones, one like one light and another dark, and each stone indicated a yes or no from God. The high priest would ask God a question, reach into his breastplate, and pull out either a yes or a no. Okay, So on this occasion, the priest probably started inquiring of the Lord on this occasion. Lord, do you want to speak to us today? Because we are told he did not answer him that day. So the stone indicated no kept being drawn out. <clears throat> so... <laughs> The Lord, as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. This shows how sure Saul was that he was right. He was so sure that he pronounced another oath. Of course, if Saul knew that it was Jonathan who violated his oath, he would have never said this. But he was so caught up in being right that he added this foolish vow to his previous foolish commandment. And Saul was very good at making religious oaths and promises, but that didn't mean very much because he was not very good at having a heart after God, and he was not very good at keeping the oaths that he made. So, strange perverseness, right? He who was so indulgent as to spare wicked Agag in chapter 15 is now so severe as to destroy his own worthy son. So the people knew Jonathan ate the honey, and Saul's sentence to death on anyone who had eaten might have sent a chill up their back. All the people loved and respected Jonathan, and they knew that Saul was in the wrong, yet he was king. All right, let's look at this a little closer. Verse 37, Saul then determined to pursue and plunder the Philistines further, but could not get an answer from the Lord. This meant to Saul that someone had violated the fast, and by means of the lot, right, the Urim and Thummim, and he discovered it was his own son, Jonathan. The only interposition of Saul's men prevented Jonathan's execution in verse 45. We'll get to that. All right, verses 40 through 44, Jonathan is implicated by the casting of lots. Then he said to all of Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for you will surely die, Jonathan. So good Lord. Saul wanted to find the wrongdoer by the casting of lots, and they separated the people into two groups, and then selected one group by a low or a high roll or something uh, like dice. So they continued to narrow the selected group until they found the one. Saul wanted to know that he and his son Jonathan were innocent. So that was the first division. So you can imagine Saul's shock when the lot indicated that he and Jonathan were the guilty group. The perfect lot in the Hebrew is very close for the word Thummim. 
and they probably used the Urim and Thummim as the way to cast the lot. So Jonathan was taken, and Saul was shaken. He pronounced a death sentence on whoever ate in violation of his forced vow. Instead of admitting that the commandment and death sentence were foolish, Saul hardened his foolishness and declared, God, do so, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul was willing to kill his son rather than humbly admit that he was really at fault. Saul started out as a humble man in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 21, but his once impressive humility was overtaken by pride. So in verse 41, this give can be translated show the innocent or escaped. The Hebrew will show went forth. And in verse 44, Saul tried to amend this by offering the spoils as a sacrifice to God. When the army went to their next engagement, they sought the guidance of God but failed to get an answer. Uh Uh-oh. And this led to Saul's discovery of Jonathan's disobedience and the foolish king was going to kill his own son. Right? How easy it is to be convicted about someone else's sins. All right, verses 45 and 46. The people rescued Jonathan from execution. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So, happily, the people finally stood up to Saul's foolishness. They simply would not allow Jonathan to be executed, and they knew that Jonathan worked with the Lord that day, not against the Lord. There are three reasons why it was right to spare Jonathan, even though he broke the oath. First, the oath and the penalty of the oath breaker were simply bad and foolish laws and should not have been enforced. Second, Jonathan broke the oath in ignorance. And finally, God's approval was evident in his blessing on Jonathan, right? He worked with God today. Jonathan's bold faith in God had much more to do with the victory on that day than was uh, Saul's foolish oath. So the implication in this phrase is that the victory might have been greater if not for Saul's foolish oath, right? The Philistines went to their own place. So in verse 45, the people rescued Jonathan, but Saul's actions revealed the darkness of his heart. Trouble was soon to come, and his pride would bring him low. So verses 47 through 52, Saul's many wars in his family. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the king of Zabah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites. And he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malchushia. And the names of his two daughters were these, the names of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Milkel, or Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinom and the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. So this last passage in the chapter is all about Saul's strength. And Saul was strong. He established his sovereignty over Israel. He fought many successful wars. He had a large and influential family. The strength of Saul's army grew when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man he took him for himself, right? So Saul's strength was broad over many areas. Ishbosheth, Saul's other son, is here omitted because he intended to mention only those of his sons who went with him into the battles here were mentioned and who were afterwards slain with him. So Saul's strength was broad, but it was shallow. 
because Saul was not a man after God's own heart, and because his own relationship with God was more about image than substance. His kingdom cannot last. The next chapter will fully expose the weakness of Saul. All right, verse 48, the major campaigns of Saul are listed in verses 47 and 48 and include victories over Moab, Ammon, Edom, and the Arameans of Zobah, the Philistines, and even the Malchalites, though his success over the latter was tempered by his lack of complete obedience to God in chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. In verse 50, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verses 33, and chapter 9, verse 39, Nair was Saul's grandfather. Nair's son was Kish, and Kish's son was Saul. But in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 50, Nair appears to be Saul's uncle and Abner his cousin. In 1 Chronicles, Abner, though he's not mentioned, would be Saul's uncle. For Abner was Nair's son in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 50. This seems like a contradiction. The seeming contradiction is eliminated by the Hebrew of 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 50, which says literally Abner, son of Nair, uncle of Saul, with the understanding that the ambiguous uncle of Saul refers not to Nair, but to Abner. Right? So in verse 51, the royal family consisted of Saul, his wife Ahinoam, his three sons, Jonathan, Ishvi, not the same as Ishbotheth or Ishbaal in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 2, where Ishvi is the same person as Abinadab, and uh, Malkishua. His daughters were Marab and Michael. David's first wife in 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 27 and Abner who served as Saul's commander of the army. Ishvi is probably not the same as Ishbosheth because Ishbosheth was apparently Saul's younger young or youngest son born after Saul began to reign. For that reason he's not listed in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 49 but is listed in the total list of Saul's sons in 1 Chronicles chapter 8 verse 33. And that will tie up chapter 14. Next time we'll continue Saul's disobedience in chapter 15. Thank you for joining me.